make these technical adjustments, please open your copy of God's Word to Revelation chapter 10. Revelation chapter 10. I use this one if it's necessary. Okay, thank you. Sorry about that. Revelation 10, just want to encourage you to look at the bulletin and uh, take note of what's going on this Easter. Yes, sure. Um, and just plan ahead a little bit. We'll be able to meet in person for uh, our Good Friday service. Thank you, sir. And uh, as well as Easter morning, recall last year we were not able to do that. So we look forward to gathering again for those two events. That's Easter weekend. So just take note of those and get those on your calendar so we can uh, celebrate the death and resurrection of our Lord and Savior together. All right. Thank you. Sorry about that. Uh, in your copy of the Word, Revelation chapter 10, uh, you're here on one of those rare mornings when we will hopefully cover an entire chapter of God's Word. So, uh, Lord willing, we will accomplish this. Let's, let's read our passage together. Then I saw another angel, mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded, and when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. And the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. This is the word of God. May he bless what we've read. Let me just pray briefly. Heavenly Father, do now open our eyes to the truth. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. When I was in high school, my favorite movie was called Where Eagles Dare. It's a World War, World War II action movie starring Richard Burton and Clint Eastwood. It's about a group of commandos sent deep behind enemy lines to rescue an American general from the Nazis. It's a fairly long movie, two and a half hours long. So long back in the day before Netflix that our TV station would show half of it one night and the second half the other night. 
and I remember staying up late to watch both halves. I remember finally being able to buy the movie on video cassette. Remember those VCRs and all that stuff? And so popped my favorite movie into the VCR and about halfway through the movie, the strangest thing happened. The theme song started and up came this slide that said intermission. I'm not sure that I'd ever seen an intermission in a movie before, but now that I think of it, I think Chitty Chitty Bang Bang has an intermission. It was a fairly common thing back in the day, whenever that day was, is because the projectionist would have to change the, the reels on the movie projector during a long movie, and they figured out that that was a great time for people to get up and buy popcorn and answer the call of nature, etc. What we find in Revelation chapter 10 is a kind of intermission. Uh, chapter 10 and, and most of chapter 11 are an interlude between the sixth and the seventh trumpets. Uh, we've seen a tremendous amount of action in the first six trumpets, and it's in in. In this interlude, it's almost as if the Lord is encouraging us to step back and take a break from the intensity of what he's revealed. One man suggests that God is saying, let's pause from the unfolding of world history so you can see something that lies behind world history. This same kind of interlude took place between the sixth sixth seal and the seventh seal. Uh, And here again in chapter 10, the Lord inserts an interlude so that you and I can see what is behind the action that we've heard announced. Consider the intensity of what we've seen so far in the first six seals. Increasing famine, increasing upheaval in world governments, increasing bitterness from the effects of sin, increasing spiritual darkness, increasing despair, and last week, increasing warfare. John really did need an intermission. And because we already see these trumpet judgments taking place in the world, because these things are already taking place in this age, you and I probably need an intermission too. We need a break from the worries, the fears, and uncertainties of COVID-19 and the blasé COVID fatigue that most of us experience. We need a break from political and racial turmoil in our nation. We need an intermission from the despair and spiritual darkness and violence that we see in the culture around us. But where will we find such a break? How can we find rest from this turmoil and upheaval that we live in? Lord, can we please take a break from all this? Can can we please have an intermission? That's what God provides in Revelation chapter 10. He pauses, uh, pauses here, uh, gives us a break from the action, this interlude. And he provides this intermission for us through John's vision of the mighty messenger of God. And there are three elements of this vision that I want to point out to you today 
which give us a, a respite, a breather, uh, an interlude. Uh, he gives us this interlude through the three elements of John's vision before us. And the first element we see is John's vision of the angel of the Lord. Uh, the mighty messenger of God descends from heaven in power and glory. But, but who is this mighty messenger that John describes to us? I want to mention four things about this angel of the Lord, this mighty messenger. And the first thing I want you to see is the identity of this angel. Who does John see descending from heaven? Look in verse 1 of chapter 10. It says, Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. Some scholars believe that John's simply referring to another angelic being, like one of the many we've seen in our study of the book of Revelation, another of the angelic host. Uh, but there, there are three reasons why this is no ordinary angel, if angels are ever ordinary. This is certainly not an ordinary rank-and-file angel from previous in the book. Uh, and there are three reasons why this is not an ordinary angel. First, I, I want you to remember that this term angel that you see in verse 1 can also be translated messenger. Uh, that's how it, it, we saw it in the letters to the seven churches. Each letter was addressed to the angel of the church in Smyrna. And we said that's better probably translated messenger because it's probably written to the pastor of that church. Uh, angel is probably used with that sense here as messenger. The second reason this is no ordinary angel is because the term angel is often used to describe Christ in the Old Testament. Uh, his, we call those his pre-incarnate appearances before he permanently took on human form. Uh, consider this from uh, the book of Malachi where the Lord says, Behold, I send my messenger. That's John the Baptist right there. And he, John, will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger, or literally angel of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he's coming, says the Lord of hosts. That's a reference to the Messiah, to Christ Jesus. And here he's called an angel or a messenger. And then think about the many appearances of Jesus throughout the Old Testament. Where he's referred to as the angel of the Lord. And, and when the angel of the Lord appears, he is worshipped as God and, and shares the same attributes as God. And that's because the angel of the Lord is God. Consider uh, the burning bush incident in Exodus 3 where it says the angel of the Lord was in the bush and remember how the bush says to Moses do not come any nearer you're standing on holy ground that angel of the Lord in the bush uh, shares God's attribute of holiness and so so often we see this of Christ Jesus in, as well as in his appearance to Samson's mother and father he is worshipped uh, by them but there's a third reason why this is no ordinary angel, and that's how John goes on to describe him in the rest of these verses, uh, his appearance and his mannerisms and his, his speech. And if you'll pardon the expression, if it looks like a duck, swims like a duck, and quacks like a duck, then it's probably a duck. 
And in this instance, if it looks like Christ, acts like Christ, and speaks like, like Christ, then guess what? Probably the Lord Jesus we're talking about here in the beginning of John chapter 10. So the identity of this angel that descends from heaven, this mighty angel, I suggest to you the mighty messenger of God is Jesus, the eternal Son of God. I want you to go on, though, and see this appearance that I've mentioned. Uh, look at how John goes on to describe him. And verse 1 continues, I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head. That's quite unusual. The cloud is probably a reference to the glory of God, the glory cloud that surrounds him. And, and I'm going to remind you of a passage from 1 Kings where Solomon brought the Ark of the Covenant into the temple, uh, the completed temple that he had constructed. It says this, And when the priest came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord, so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. This cloud is the glory, uh, the glory cloud that surrounds him. And he, he mentions a rainbow here as well. This is how Ezekiel describes the Lord in Ezekiel 1 in his vision of the glory of God. Ezekiel says that the, um, uh, the Lord's appearance was like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain. So, so was the appearance of the brightness all around. And, and John goes on. Look at uh, further in verse 1, right in the middle there, and his face was like the sun. <clears throat> Think back to uh, when Peter and John and James were taken up on the Mount of Transfiguration. This is exactly how John describes Christ in Matthew chapter 17, and he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. This is how John described Jesus in Revelation chapter 1 in that first vision he had of the Lord Jesus. It says there, In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. John goes on to describe his legs in that last phrase, his legs like pillars of fire. Again, this is just how John describes him in chapter 1. <clears throat> this is also how Ezekiel describes the Lord in Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 27. Uh, and downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, an appearance of fire. And there was brightness around him. And as I mentioned in Revelation 1, his feet were like burnished bronze refined in a, in a furnace. If it looks like Christ and acts like Christ speaks like Christ it's probably Christ finally John goes on to say about his appearance that he is carrying a little book in verse 2 he had a little scroll open in his hand a lot of ink spilt about this little scroll you wouldn't believe it um, trying to figure out what this scroll is a huge debate some think that it's the same scroll that was opened in chapters 6 and 7. Others believe that this little scroll consists of the book of Revelation, part of the book of Revelation. 
Uh, some say it's just simply the gospel. The best explanation I heard was this very simple observation by one man. He says, whatever it is, it obviously originated from heaven, and it came down to earth to be used on earth. That's brilliant. Uh, so I would conclude, uh, safe to conclude, that this is simply the word of God or some part of God's word that this mighty angel, Christ, is holding in his hand. This is his appearance. Uh, John describes him just the way that the Lord is described in other parts of the word. But John goes on to, to describe him further, and I really need you to notice this next uh, feature, and that is his posture. This mighty angel descended from heaven, uh, this mighty messenger of God has the posture, absolute authority, and supremacy. Uh, continuing in verse 2, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. The reference to sea and land is a, is a literary device, a figure of speech uh, to refer not just to those two things, but to refer to all of creation, uh, the, the entire cosmos, uh, the universe, as, as if you would, the, the, the entire created order of things. And he sets one foot on sea and the other on land. This is, this is significant. Because in the scripture, this is a way to demonstrate that you had conquered something and had complete control over it. Uh, for example, in the book of Joshua, after Joshua and uh, his army defeats Amorite kings, this is what Joshua says to his commanders. When they brought those kings out to Joshua, Joshua summoned all the men of Israel and said to the chiefs of the men of war who had gone with him, when Joshua... And Israel defeated five Ammonite kings. Excuse me, I just read that. Come put your feet on the necks of these kings. They came near and put their feet on their necks. Of course, strange language to us, but that was a visible demonstration that you had conquered them. They were completely under your submission and under your control. And so it's no coincidence then that we turn to the book of Hebrews. And the author of Hebrews goes on to describe Jesus in, in a very similar way. You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet, that same image. And then quoting Psalm 110, this writer says, And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? And then, of course, the Apostle Paul, this uh, um, these verses that we've looked at several times about Christ and his enthronement. Uh, Paul writes these words according to the working of his great might, the Father's might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority. And 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 power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. This, this is no ordinary angel. Run-of-the-mill angel, if you will. Uh, John sees the angel of the Lord. John sees Jesus Christ, the ruler of the universe. 
John sees Christ who stands as sovereign Lord over all creation. If it looks like Christ, if it acts like Christ, then... Why does the Father reveal Christ in this way? John's already seen him in his glory in chapter 1, and here again. Why another vision of Christ? It's because John has seen terrible things. in those first six trumpets. God has unleashed terrible judgments on the world of unbelievers. Increasing famine and upheaval and bitterness and spiritual darkness and despair and warfare. It's because of these things that John needs an intermission. John needed again to be reminded of the absolute supremacy of Christ and see Him standing as Lord and Master over all the created order. Even though, even through the seemingly chaotic events of the world around Him, John needed to see Christ as the sovereign Lord of history. Can I just point out that this is a pretty prominent theme in the book of Revelation? You know, I want to say if I've mentioned it once, I've mentioned it a million times. You know, not quite that much, but we see it again. It's one of the major threads through this, through this entire book, the supremacy, absolute supremacy of Christ. And this is why you and I need an interlude. This is why you and I need an intermission. Uh, with the turmoil around us, you and I need to catch our breath. And you and I, like John, need to see yet again that Christ still stands as Lord over his creation, especially after the events that took place this week. Things are not out of his control. History unfolds as he ordains it to unfold. Christ is Dr. Joel Beakey observes, when we hear about terrible things that are happening in the world, such as kidnappings, civil unrest, earthquakes, and fires, we must remember that Christ towers over everything. All things are under his control. The feet that once were nailed to the cross now straddle the universe. That's a good word. We see the posture of this angel, but we're not quite finished with this 
vision of the mighty messenger of the Lord, because there's one more thing, and that's his voice. Get a load of his voice. Uh, in verse 3, it says, And called out with a loud voice, like a lion roaring. Throughout the Bible, the Lord's voice is often compared to the voice of a lion in its ferocity and its intensity. Uh, the book of Joel, uh, chapter 3, verse 16, the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. And then in Amos, uh, the lion has roared. Who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken. And Christ, of course, we, re we remember is described as the lion of the tribe of Judah. If it looks like Christ and acts like Christ and sounds like Christ, then it's got to be Christ. And look what his voice says as it continues. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. And of course, when God seals it up and says, don't write it down, Bible scholars begin immediately to dream about what this is. Some men have just a little too much time on their hands, I think. Well, there's no point, because it's hidden, right? Yes. Uh, but hear the lion roar. Christ the mighty lion of the tribe of Judah. So this is how this angel of the Lord is described through these four things. And as we look at these things, I conclude, and I hope you do too, that this must be a vision of Christ in all his glorious supremacy. But there's a Another element in this vision, he goes on first to describe the angel of the Lord, but next he, he brings up again the day of the Lord. And we're talking about the final day when we refer to the day of the Lord. And Christ promises that the day will come without delay. And God's plan of redemption will be fulfilled. And I want to mention two things about this day. And first, we see the oath. The angel of the Lord, Jesus uh, the angel of the Lord, that is Jesus, swears by the living God that there will be no more delay. Verse 5 says this, And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land, again, there's the sovereign and supreme Christ, raised his hand to heaven. This is the typical, usual Hebrew expression for someone that would take an oath, much like we would in a court of law perhaps, raising the right hand is the normal posture when someone makes a solemn vow. Verse 6 goes on, and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it. Uh, Christ takes an oath, swearing by God the Father. This is, this is, God swearing by God. Uh, something very similar took place in, in its described for us in Hebrews 6. Uh, his word says, Therefore, when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And the point there was God's promise to Abraham was 
guaranteed by God's very existence. And so when Christ takes this oath swearing by God the Father, he's affirming and guarantee his vow by the holiness and the truthfulness and the power and the very existence of God the Father. If, if God who created all things, Christ says, can stop being, then my, world will my word will fail. But since that cannot be what I take this oath about will surely come to pass. This is the oath he takes. But I want to go on and point out what this oath is about. What is the content of his promise? And uh, uh, look up to verse 6 in, in that very final phrase. And he describes the content that there would be no more delay. Uh, there would be no more delay. I want to get you to think back to chapter 6, and I know you probably don't remember what's in chapter 6, but one of the seals that was broken open, we, we saw the saints under the altar, those who had been martyred, killed for their faith. And they cry out, Oh Lord, how long till you avenge our blood on those who dwell on earth, the unbelievers who've, who've taken our lives. And, and they're encouraged to rest a little longer. Rest a little longer until the number of your fellow servants and uh, your brothers should be complete who are to be killed as they themselves have. And, and from rest a little longer, we come here in verse 7, there will be no more delay. from rest a little to now time is up for the unbelieving world. The events of the end are about to be set in motion and the blood of the martyrs will be avenged. No more delay, uh, he says. Then he goes on to make a second part of this oath. Not only would there be no more delay, he promises that God will fulfill his plan of redemption. God promises he will bring to completion his plan to redeem sinners. Look at verse 7 where you see this. But that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled. Just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. Mystery here doesn't refer to, to an episode of Scooby-Doo, a spy novel, a creepy story, uh, a detective story. Mystery, uh, as it's used in Scripture, refers to something that was previously hidden, uh, specifically in the Old Testament era, but now has been revealed in the New Testament. And so what was it that was hidden in the Old Testament era, now revealed in the New. And that simply is God's plan to redeem sinners through Christ. And His atoning death on the cross, His plan to redeem those He had chosen before the foundation of the world through the death of His Son. 
Here, here Paul described this mystery at the very end of the book of Romans. He says, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel, and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed through the prophetic writings, uh, through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Christ promises not only no more delay, but he promises at the seventh trumpet, at the last trumpet, his plan to redeem sinners will be finished. Listen to Dr. Beakey again. In, in effect, the mighty angel is saying, I swear to you by God himself, the creator of the ends of the earth, that there shall be no more delay in the accomplishment of God's eternal decrees. When the seventh trumpet sounds, God's kingdom will come immediately, and his purposes of grace and justice will be fulfilled. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion till the day of Jesus Christ. Christ takes a solemn oath by the Father that there will be no more delay, but that the day of the Lord will come and that God will complete the plan He set in motion in eternity past to redeem sinners for himself. It will happen. One more element in John's vision that I want to point out. First was the angel of the Lord, then the day of the Lord, and now third, the word of the Lord. Uh, the third element in John's vision and here we see that the Lord commands John to digest his word and proclaim it to all people. Two parts to this command, two halves of this command, if you will. The first half uh, we see commanded to John is eat this book. Uh, the Lord commands him to eat the little scroll. Verse 8, look at what it says. Then the angel, excuse me, then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again saying, go take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. Again, I describe this little scroll or little book as the word of God or a portion of, of God's word. Um, and here God instructs John to take the little scroll from the hand of Christ as verse 9 goes on to say, so I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. Christ commands John to take his word. And, and that phrase there uh, in verse 9, eat it, uh, is, is more than simply eat it. It means eat it up, devour it, take it in to your inner man. And here John is being commanded to, to become personally involved with his word so that it, it has, has an effect on him. 
eat it up is, is to personally appropriate the message, to, to master it, to absorb it, to, to be completely controlled by it. That's what eat it means. Eat it down, John. Devour it. It's what Paul mentions in Colossians 3, this verse that I've put up about a million times in front of you. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Devouring his word, he goes on to say, will have two effects on John. It will be sweet in his mouth. Verse 10 says, And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth. This is the, the sweetness, the joyful effect of God's saving grace. It's the sweetness of God's cleansing from sin. It's the sweetness of His forgiveness. It's the sweetness of communion with Christ, fellowshipping with Him through the Word. David puts it like this in very similar terms in Psalm 19. Uh, excuse me, let me go to Jeremiah first. Uh, your words were found, and I ate them. And your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart, for I am called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. I think I've got Psalm 19 here. Here it is. More to be desired are they, his commands, than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Can you picture that metaphor in your mind? I, I know I've said this before, but, you know, I just love homemade biscuits. I don't eat them that often. And you know what it is to, to pull them out when mom or your spouse puts them on the dinner table and they're all covered up and they're warm. And you take your fork and you go around it and you plop it open and you butter up the middle. You put it back together and let that butter melt. Then after a couple minutes, you open it, and there's that melted butter. And you take the little, the little bear. <laughs> and you put a little round thing in the middle. And whether you're eating this for breakfast or dinner, remember what that first bite tastes like. Sweetness of that honey. That's a good thing. Man, forgive me for whatever nutritional value comes in biscuits and honey, but wow. I consider them one of God's good gifts. <laughs> Has the Word of God ever been like that to you? maybe you can't imagine such a thing. The biscuit you can well imagine. Some of you I know have tasted the Word of God like David describes it. David unfortunately probably didn't have biscuits. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb.
And in this intermission, the Lord tells John, as part of this interlude, eat this book. Eat this book. You've seen hard things. And you need to take this into your very being. So, let me ask you in the midst of your COVID fatigue, what you've been snacking on. I know you've been snacking. We've all been snacking. What are you feeding your soul with? Listen to John Piper. He asked the same question. He says, If you don't feel strong desires for the manifestation of the glory of God, it's not because you have drunk deeply and are satisfied. It's because you have nibbled so long at the table of the world. Your soul is stuffed with small things. And there is no room for the great. God did not create you for this. There is an appetite for God. And it can be awakened. I invite you to turn from the dulling effects of food and the dangerous idolatry and to say with some simple fast, this much, O oh God, I want you. We have a, a debate that kind of rages in my household. And it's about gummy worms. I think they're disgusting. I think they look disgusting. And, I mean, would you rather have gummy worms or biscuits with honey? <laughs> I know there's a, maybe a handful of you would say, I'd go for the gummy worms. And that's just wrong. <laughs> and this is what John needs for his soul and this is what you and I need in this intermission is to take in and eat this book it's sweet in the mouth but there's another effect that John describes it's bitter in his stomach in verse 10 uh, but when I had eaten it in my stomach, was made bitter. When the word of Christ is proclaimed, when, when men hear that God's free gift of salvation comes only through Jesus Christ, when they understand that salvation requires repentance, that they must turn their back on the sins they cherish, when... Uh, men realize there's nothing they can do to earn salvation. When, when men understand that unless they rely fully and completely on the atoning death of Christ, they will spend eternity in a place called hell. And when that word is proclaimed in this way, it is offensive to people. When God's way of salvation is announced, it produces opposition and this is most likely the bitterness that Christ is describing to John. The sweetness of his word that brings salvation and fellowship with God will become bitter when it's proclaimed to the world. This is what we read about this morning in Ezekiel chapter 1. 
Recall almost the identical words. Eat this book, Ezekiel. Be sweet in your mouth, but I'm sending you to a people who are hard as a rock, and they will not accept it. The Lord commands John, eat this book. So, are you eating the book in a way that uh, is not just simply reading a paragraph, but reading it in a way that affects you and taking it into your soul and letting it transform you. This is the Lord's prescription in this intermission. In this little break. Is to eat this book. And he goes on to uh, give a second part of this command. Not only was John and us commanded to eat the book. The second part of the Lord's command to John was proclaim this book. After John has internalized the word, Christ calls him to proclaim it to the nations. Verse 11 says, And I was told you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. And you and I are something to do, are summoned to do something uh, similar to this. First, to devour his word, to, to eat it up, to let it dwell in us richly, and then second, to proclaim it to those around us to carry it to the nations, to proclaim God's free gift of forgiveness through faith in Christ's atoning death. And we see this charge uh, renewed and given afresh in Matthew 28. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. We not only eat the book, we we then turn around and we proclaim this book to our spouses, our children, and the world around us, peoples, uh, uh, nations, languages, and kings. This is the third element of John's vision, the word of the Lord. So, We need an intermission. Well, I need an intermission. And I assume some of you might feel like you need an intermission too. And where do we find it? This break. This is what God provides in Revelation 10. A, a break from the action. This interlude and God provides this break through John's vision of the mighty messenger of God. Uh, the angel of the Lord. And we must again recognize the absolute supremacy of Jesus Christ. We've seen it in the promise of the day of the Lord. That it will be fulfilled. God's plan of redemption 
And then finally, the word of the Lord. Eat this book and proclaim it. Let's pray as we conclude. We pray, Christ Jesus, that as you meant this chapter and this vision of Christ to encourage and recommission and refill and re-energize John, your apostle, that it would be the same for us. That this intermission would serve to recharge us. To refill us. To encourage us. As it must have encouraged John. Above everything, Christ Jesus, let us take away the, another vision of you and your precious and absolute supremacy over this world. Thank you that the feet that were nailed to the cross now straddle the universe. Christ, encourage us as we eat your book and share it with those around. Savior, we pray in your precious name. Amen.